Well, thank you, and what a delight for me to be here in Wichita. I was here a number of years ago, and what a joy to see all of you, and thank you for the wonderful team you sent our way. We had an incredible experience with them. I'll mention a little bit more about that later. But my wife and I were privileged to work in the Amazon. Jesus said it in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the Amazon. <laughs> and uh, well, he said uttermost, but that's where it is. And what a delight to serve him, to be a part of kingdom's work in that part of the world. We have been blessed beyond measure. My wife passed away two and a half years ago. She served faithfully 45 years and did an outstanding work in that part of the world. Well, I'll never forget that morning. I looked out of the window of our little clinic and I saw this dugout canoe coming towards our bank, our port on the Kusu and the Marañón rivers where they flowed together. Beautiful scenery all around. The lush, green, velvety jungle. The river that was just meandering down to meet the great Amazon. <clears throat> and I saw this man lift a young child from the bottom of that dugout canoe. Hurriedly, he made his way up to our clinic. I opened up the door, ushered them in, and I noticed the little boy was quite sick. I asked the father what has happened. He showed me the child. He has had a protruding abdomen. And why, right away I was aware of the fact that the child probably had roundworm infestation, which would be a prominent scene among our children. And so after examining the child, I said to him, your, your child does have a severe case of roundworm infestation. And I gave him the medicine. I said, now take this. Give this to your son and bring him back tomorrow because I will have to do another treatment and uh, we'll do this for about three days. I dismissed them and watched as they made their way back down the trail to their canoe. And the father began paddling his canoe, not in the direction of their home where they lived upriver in the village of Chipe. Now, do you know where Chipe is? It's just down from Numpatkaim and up from Chingamai, give you an idea where it's located there. <laughs> and I said to my helper, I, I turned to him and I said, they don't live up the Kusu River, they live up the Marañón. Where are they going? He hesitated for a long moment, and of course we were new, young missionaries, just getting started, trying to identify with a culture and customs that were so foreign to us there in the Amazon. And he said, well, they're going to visit the witch doctor tonight. But they've just been here. He said, well, most people come here and then go to the witch doctor to cover all their bases. And I was deflated. And he said, many of them come to the witch doctor and then come to you as well. well that helped me a little bit. And I blurted out without thinking. I said, I, I would like to go to the witch doctor's hut tonight myself. Not that I was sick. I just wanted to see how they worked, what this was all about. And so he said, we will go tonight because the witch doctor only works at night. During the daytime, he takes hallucinating drugs like datim and ayahuasca so that he will have visions from the spirit world to heal those people that he treats. And I said, oh, that's, that's good. I'll, we'll, we'll go tonight then. 
Well, the sun was shining. It was a beautiful day, and I finished up my work, and the afternoon hours waned on, and we bathed in the river, which was our custom with the children, and my wife had a nice meal that night, and darkness settled in across the rainforest. You could hear the sounds of night all around us, the predator animals looking for their prey in the canopy. The night sounds are very eerie with the croaking of a thousand frogs. And I kind of forgot about going to the witch doctor's hut. And I saw a flashlight approaching our home. Oh, no, he remembered. And he came to the house and he called to me, Yatsuhud, friend doctor, are you there? I said, yes, I'm here. And I wish I wasn't. <laughs> and he said, I've got the boat ready. Come on, we're going. I said, well, you know, really, this, I looked outside, and it was that eerie blackness. I could barely see the outline of the trees on the distant shore and the comforts of my home with the light and being with my family and visiting the witch doctor first time. This would be absolutely unthinkable. I said, they don't know we're coming. We, we should not just barge in and announce. No, I've got the boat ready. Let's go. And he took off, and I told my wife goodnight and hugged the kids and grabbed my flashlight and made my way outside and down to the port we went. And I got into our little boat, and we both had a paddle. And we began to paddle up the quiet rivers of the Kusu River. And as we made our way upstream, slowly falling along the bank, I could hear the little pecking sound of our old small diesel generator. And I looked back and I could see the lights in our home. And then we rounded a bend in the river and I could no longer hear the sounds of the motor. I could no longer see the sights of the house. It was pitch black. Little drops of water would splash from the paddles onto us, chilling us there in that night. And I said, you know, Moses, this isn't a good idea. Let, let, let's do this another night. He said, no, we're, we're not too far away. And we kept paddling along, and, and then we could see shadows up above. And he said, yes, look at the port of the witch doctor. There are numerous canoes there. There are a large number of people at his hut tonight. Let, let's go back. Really, this isn't a good idea. They don't know we're coming, and I don't want them to be upset. No, we're almost there. Oh, that was his words, eternal words. And we nudged into the mud bank, and he jumped out of the canoe of our boat and tied up the to a tree, and he grabbed his flashlight and started along the trail, and I didn't want to be there by myself in the boat, and so I followed him along, and as we made our way down this dark, thin, cut trail, the witch doctor can't live close to the river. He's got to live way back in where it scares you to death, and we're walking along this trail, threading our way through, and the, the, the trail was not very wide, and, and it was a little muddy and moist because under the canopy of the rainforest, the ground never dries. It's always wet and sometimes muddy. And we made our way around, and then I could hear off in the distance these sounds. Hey, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, on my arms. I could hear the chanting of the witch doctor. Off in the distance, I could only feel the, the, the cool, damp night air around me. I heard all the predator sounds of the animals in the canopy overhead. And, and I wanted in the worst way to go back home. And I said, Moses, let's go back. You know, this isn't a good idea. No, we're almost to his hut. He had that almost sign every time I spoke to him. 
And then we rounded another bend, and I could hear that eerie sound carrying out through the jungle night air. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I was heart beating rapidly. The adrenaline was flowing. Then I could see under a, a faint moon that desperately tried to break through the thick cloud layer, the outline of a bamboo-walled hut. I could see the thatched roofing. There was a little yellowish light coming between those bamboo poles from a little fire they had in the middle of the hut on three logs. And we stopped short of the hut. And of course, you always call to announce your presence. And he called out in the Algoruna dialect, Yatsuhu Chimpa, that was the name of the witch doctor, friend Chimpa, are you there? And from back inside the hut, we heard the word, Oh, Yatsuhu Puhahe, Yepo, yes, I'm here, who's there? And he announced my name. And the witch doctor said, Come in and sit down. We made our way through the nor very narrow doorway made of just post that you moved the post out of the way. And into this darkened hut, I saw the little boy lying on a bamboo mat right in front of me. He was in a kind of a semi-hypnotic state. The little boy that I examined that morning and the witch doctor was bent over him making sucking sounds over his abdomen to extract the disease that he had. And they never taught me that. <laughs> and the other witch doctor, there were two of them working that night, he was sitting on a hand stool and he was cheering on, the, you can cure this boy, you are all powerful. You have taken the hallucinating drugs today. You will be able to cure this boy. And I'm watching this scene, and I can see in the background, barely making up the shadows of a large group of people. And off to the side was the grandfather. He was preparing tobacco leaves from a small fire. And I'm wondering, what, what's the tobacco leaves about? And I saw the crowd back there in the shadows. They were all still, no sound from them. And then the witch doctor who was making the sucking sounds, he rose with an agonizing expression and spit on the floor the disease that caused the boy's sickness. And then the man, grandfather, brought the tobacco leaves from the fire. And the witch doctor inhaled that and then blew the smoke out so that he would not be contaminated. And I'm a young, green, wet, behind-the-ear missionary watching this and uh, I was overcome with customs and culture, overcome with the superstitious world, the fear that revolves around that world. And a few moments later, we dismissed ourselves, made our way back down that trail to our boat. I was overwhelmed that night with the need of these people, what they'd been taught from knee to grasshopper, and into our boat, we made our way back down the river. I was really in deep thought, God, you sent us out here. How in the world are we going to reach these people? How can we bring the gospel to people that are so steeped in witchcraft and superstitions and the fear of the spirit world? How do we do this? And around the bends we came, and then I could hear the little pecking of our diesel motor off in the distance. And around the next bend, I could see the lights of our little home there, sitting on the corner of those two rivers. And I just wanted to crawl in that house and erase the memories of the last couple hours. 
I wanted to go into that home and embrace my kids and my wife and, and, and forget that scene that I, because it was so disturbing to me. And as our boat nudged into the mud bank, a scene reflected back in my mind. Just a short term before that, I went to visit the gravesite of a very famous missionary, the name of Esther Carson Winans. I remember going to visit that little gravesite out on the edge of the jungle. She came to that place to bring the gospel to those people, but she lived only four short years and died after giving childbirth. Her husband, Roger Winans, that night my mind reflected, went back. You see, Roger Winans was born in Kansas, of all places. And he went to a little Bible school. And one day he went to the sand hills to pray. And he asked for God's direction in his life. No answer. The second day, no answer. The third day in the afternoon, God spoke to him about a tribal group of people with no name in the northern Amazon of Peru. And he determined that he would go there, and the story is long. But you know the beautiful thing that absolutely overwhelmed me this year? He was from Kansas, received his calling in the sand hills of Kansas, and then you sent a team to build a church where he established his mission, Yamayakit. The last place that Roger Winans lived and established a mission. But he retired never seeing the church. He retired and never saw what would come later. Esther Carson, just before she died, had said, it looks as though we have come to sow so that those who come later might reap. And how incredibly important is that, that the calling from Kansas and Wichita sends a team to build a church where he retired from. I was overwhelmed. Thank you for participating in mission. Thank you for involving yourself. Thank you for giving. And uh, we began our work. <laughs> oh, my word. We went to our little, our little dirt-floored church on Sunday morning. It was the only church in the whole tribe. All the work that they had done, the seed they had planted, never came to fruition. But God had a plan. And on Sunday mornings, my wife and I would go into that church, and it was an incredible scene. There would be the men with all their finery on, their beetle-winged earrings, their head feathers, a parrot, their tattoo marks on their prominent cheekbone, their skirts on, the men barefooted, of course, the women all sitting on the other side of the church. It was an unbelievable scene. And those early, early days on Sunday, I, I would give an altar call, and would anyone like to come and pray? And the men would fold their arms and look at me with that stoic expression. Because in their culture, forgiveness was a complicated word. You don't forgive your enemies, you kill them. And for them to come to an altar was unacceptable. Un you couldn't do that. And Sunday after Sunday, I would, I would ask God to please help us. We need a breakthrough. We're getting discouraged. 
months have gone by and nothing's happening and, and, and we're working, trying to reach these people. And we even established our clinic on a boat. We would pack up all of our medical supplies and our dental supplies and we would go down river to a village in our dugout canoe boat. We would stop at a village and we would ask if we could have a, a service and I would treat your people. Oh, they loved that. And we would have a church service. My wife teach a few courses and so forth. I would preach and a couple people might get saved and then they'd line up for hours to be treated, pull their teeth and treat. That was a mess. And we'd do that the next day and go on to another village and repeat the same process. But at our church there, it was so challenging. The men were very, very difficult to reach. Every Sunday with their arms folded and looking at me with that stoic expression and not come to the altar. And then one night, I will never forget it. It was one of those pitch black nights. And in the village right up river from us, a half an hour away by trail, in the village of Chipe, I remember Chipe is just down from Numpatkin and up from Chingamai. The people were awakened that night with these cries. And the men thinking that a revenge killing raid was about to take place, they all grabbed their palm wood spears and made their way outside. Their spears poised in their hands because they knew that a revenge killing raid was about to take place. For three months previous, men from that village had gone to the village of Kanka. Now, Kanka is up the Sinepa River, a long way by trail, and killing had ensued. And they knew that their turn had come, for revenge killings never stopped. And so the men were outside with their backs to the river, their spears poised in their hands, the women came lighting their little wick lamps from their fire and made their way beside their husbands terrified. Little children came running, clinging to their mom's legs in stark fear. Mom, what's happening? And they made the children quiet. The dogs were barking up and down the bank and the men were waiting for those warriors to spring out of the forest and fighting would ensue. But then... They heard the sounds again, and they came not from the forest, but from the river. And every man turned and faced the darkness. They could barely see the outline of the trees on the distant bank again. They could hear the rolling of the Marignon River. And then they cupped their ears, and they heard the sounds of three men. Please help us. We are hopelessly adrift. We cannot get to shore. We've lost our paddles and we are headed for the rapids and the whirlpools. See, those three men had crossed the river earlier that day to a beer feed. <laughs> now, their beer would be a lot different than you find here in Wichita. Yeah, the women make the beer. Now, the staple of your diet is what we call yucca. It's a, a root plant. And on this stem will grow several of these long tubers, and you break those off, and the women wash them at the, down at the water. You peel those, and you boil them in water, and that's what you eat three times a day the rest of your life, along with boiled green banana and fish out of the river and some game that they catch. 
monkey and armadillo and you name it. And, uh, well, the ladies take the boiled yucca. Instead of swallowing it, they masticate it with their saliva. They mix it. I've sat in the hut, you know, with several women watching them, and they chew it and roll it around their saliva, and, and they're talking at the same time. It's a sight. And they have a big 10-gallon clay pot in their hut, and several women are chewing, and they spit into the pot. They chew and spit for hours. And the pot gets gradually filled, and when it's full enough, they add a little bit of water to stretch it out. Then they tie a fresh green banana leaf around that, holding it with a vine, and leave that sit to ferment for three days and nights. And three days later, there's nothing in Wichita that will come close to it. <laughs> and the men come in from whatever they've been doing that day, maybe working in the gardens or fishing, and they come in and they're ready for an all-nighter. And the ladies remove that banana leaf and now this fermented, intoxicating masato, the men begin to drink that, and they get a little tipsy and high, and when they do, they paint themselves up, they put on all their paraphernalia, and they dance around with their spear in their hand, hey, 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 and I could hear them in the wee hours of the night, night after night, and it was something else, and that those three men had crossed the river that day to participate in a beer feed. And in that drunken stupor, they decided to return back to the main village that night in a dugout canoe. As they were crossing the Marañón River, which is a very fast-moving river, you have to be very careful, you don't travel it at night, but they were coming back and they were hit broadside by a wave, thinking they were going to capsized, they dropped their paddles in fear and clung to that weaving, bobbing canoe. And they were holding on for dear life, and they knew that 15 minutes down the river, they would enter into one of the most treacherous parts of the river. It's where the river narrows and goes across some huge boulders, and it forms two menacing whirlpools right below the rapids. And once you enter that, you're gone. And these men knew that they were headed for the whirlpools. And you could hear their voices trailing in the distance. Please help us, send the longboat, save us, we're headed for the whirlpools. And their voices faded off in the distance. And the women recognized those men, for some were their wives. And they pleaded with the other men, go help them, save them, they will be drowned tonight. The men said, we have no motorized craft, we have no light sufficient. We too would risk our lives. We would drown as well. We can't help them. And chaos broke out along the bank of the river. The children were crying. The women were pleading with the men, go after them, help them. They will drown. And crying ensued. And once you hear that crying, you never forget it. And the men said, we can't. And then out of the darkness came a lone figure. He had on just hunting trunks. His long black hair hung loosely over those broad shoulders. He was barefooted, of course, just had the hunting trunks on, no shirt. He had a broad blade paddle over his shoulder. He said not a word as he made his way through that group of people. He dropped down the lower area and came to the river's edge. 
there was a young man standing not too far away, and he said to the young man, grab a paddle, shove me out, and jump in the canoe. And the young man, obeying that authoritative voice, did just that. And now into that inky blackness, they begin crisscrossing the river, searching and looking for the runaway, but no sign. Back and forth they went. Water splashed off the, the, off the sides of the canoe and chilling their bodies to the bone. And they continued their trek downriver, searching and looking for that runaway and no sign of it. And around the next bend, they could hear the roaring of the water crashing against those boulders. And they could see in their mind's eye that great rapid area and then into those two menacing whirlpools and the young man said to the older man sitting in the back of the canoe, strike the far shore, save us, we too will drown. The older man said not a word and pushed his paddle deep into the water, pulling broad strokes. The young man was terrified. He put his paddle beside him, clung to the weaving, bobbing canoe as it was picking up speed now, making its way to the entrance of the great rapid area. And no sign of the runaway canoe. Their muscles burned and ached from that paddling, searching, crisscrossing the river. And finally, in desperation, the little young man was looking and he could hear that roaring of the water down below. He was so terrified. And then he spotted a dark object floating off to the right. And he said, it's the canoe. And the man pulled on that paddle with all of his might and they came alongside the runaway canoe. The three drunk men tumbled into that canoe. They couldn't believe they'd been spared. Their lives were saved. And now the young man picked up his paddle and they struggled against that current and just barely before they entered the rapids broke that current, hit the backwater and struck the far shore. And three drunk men tumbled out of that canoe onto the bank. They couldn't believe they'd been saved. And now the two men begin pulling that canoe along the bank all the way back upriver, turn after turn. And then they could look across the river and they could see the little lights the ladies were holding aloft. And they could hear the women chanting, How cha! Five men have drowned in the river tonight. And back into the canoe, they crossed the river. I'd like you to meet the man in the back of that canoe. <laughs> you, you see, it was one of those Sunday mornings. My wife and I were desperate. We'd been fasting and praying, God, please give us, help us to find a break. Give us people at the altar. We, we need to see these people come to you and be changed. And we had prayed and fasted, and Sunday morning came. And I preached my heart out, and I said, is there anyone this morning who'd like to come to the altar? And I looked, and a man slipped out of his seat over here, slowly made his way down the dirt floor, and he knelt at the altar. His shoulders were heaving, and sobs racked his body, and his tears splashed from the altar onto the dirt floor. And you could have heard a pin drop in that church that day because of all men it was the greatest warrior known in the entire tribe. He had killed more men in his lifetime than any man we had ever known. It was Lucho Asangai. I knelt down beside him. I cried and prayed with him. And he came up from that altar, a changed man. God wonderfully 
redeemed him. He had killed more men in his lifetime than any warrior we had ever met. He had the scars to prove it. And here he of all men was praying at our altar. And for two years he helped us. You see, work and witness hadn't been invented yet. So we had to have our Sunday school class out under the trees. I wouldn't want to do that here. But there, it's nice and warm. And he helped us teach the men every Sunday morning. And then he became well-known, not for his revenge killing, but for his testimony. And he was invited village after village to tell people about the Lord. But before that, something happened in his home village. Those men with whom he drank, those men with whom he went on war parties and revenge killing raids, they turned on him because he would no longer participate. When he would walk the trails around the village, they would call out, there goes God, and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They tested him at every turn of the trail to fight. They invited him to their intoxicating beer parties. And he held a steady course. We prayed for that man desperately because we knew that if he reverted back to the old ways, heads would fly. For you see, those people were part of the Hivero tribe. And they shrunk the heads years ago of their enemies that they killed. And we prayed desperately that Lucha would hold a steady course and God wonderfully helped that man. You see, Lucho was the man in the back of the canoe. And when that canoe crossed the river that night, I'm sure his mind went back to those early days in his village. Well, you see, he started one of the very first Nazarene churches in an indigenous village. He and two other men hauled the leaves and hauled the bamboo from the river and they built one of the first Nazarene churches and he began to preach in that church. He had no education. He went back and sat with the school children up to the second grade to learn to read and he faithfully preached in that little church but only a few women came. Only a few children came and a couple men and his life was desperately tormented. They tested him at every bend of the trail until that night. And as that canoe came to the port and those three drunken men stepped ashore and Lucho Asangai walked the length of that canoe and stepped on dry ground, he walked through that group of men and not one man could look at him. They turned their gaze to the ground for that night, it was not a message they heard. It was one they saw. And it changed our world forever. Lucha became a legend. Village after village. I traveled with him along the trails. In an Indian hut where we would sleep at night, he would reach out to the older folk and bring the gospel to them. He's gone now, but he left a legacy. And today among those people, there are over 220 churches because you gave. Because you prayed. Because some of you have gone. 
and you changed the world forever because they saw in action what God can do. And I'm here this morning to thank you. I'm here to thank you for sending that wonderful team back in July to be with us. They loved on our people, wrapped their arms around those people in Yamayaket where that great pioneer missionary Roger Wyman is retired from, never having seen the work, but planted the seed. That's the beautiful part about Nazarene missions is her continuity year after year. I saw your foyer. I saw those beautiful scenes out there of Africa and the Philippines. I've seen all the literature about your faith promise and your work and witness. You are to be congratulated. Thank you for involving yourselves in mission. Thank you for being a part of that which reaches the world. And uh, he said it well. I go back to Philip. Huh. You know, they changed Philip's name. His name was Joseph. They changed his name to Philip, which means son of consolation. And then I remember when he was in Jerusalem with his wife, he'd been pastoring over in Caesarea. And uh, the Bible says that when he was there, the Holy Spirit, an angel came and said, I want you to go to Gaza. Gaza? Didn't tell him why. Didn't tell him what he's going to do in Gaza, which is desert. Not much in Gaza. And he, with blind obedience, told his wife, tomorrow I'm going to Gaza. She said, honey, why are you going to Gaza? I don't know. But I'm going. God told me to go. And you know the story. He met the treasure of the Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And God performed a miracle there in his salvation. God always has a purpose. He took two young green missionaries, didn't know much, and with a multitude of work and witness people, and with people home giving and praying and supporting, God transformed a whole culture. He brought those people to himself. Today, there are three districts among those Indian folk, managed completely by them because they saw your example. Thank you for involving yourself in mission. Thank you for being a part of that. I am so grateful for your commitment to world mission. May God wonderfully bless you. Thank you.